Tonight we're talking about Christian spirituality in terms of the walk by faith, the Christian walk by faith. And um, that's a transition from talking through cleansing in Psalm 51, David's prayer of recovery for the sin with Bathsheba. And now we're moving to one of the great metaphors for the Christian way of life throughout the New Testament, walking, the walk. And um, my favorite passage on what is going on between the flesh and the indwelling Holy Spirit is Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that's just one aspect of the Christian life. And I said last time, just by way of review, that a very small portion of Christianity and the Christian spiritual life is actually what we do about sin. It's a very small portion. Um, It's a problem. It's a daily problem, but it's um, just one aspect of the Christian life, the dealing with sin. And um, uh, I want to say that a bigger piece of it is this thing we're talking about tonight, uh, to walk by faith, to walk by faith. And um, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite passages is Second Corinthians chapter five. If you want to turn there, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Second Corinthians chapter five. And so, by way of outline, just what I would like to accomplish tonight, I want to talk about what the walk by faith as a believer is not. The wrong way to think about Christian life and faith. A couple of wrong ways to think about it. I like to do that first. I like to get all the bad ideas out there and say, not those things, but this thing. Um, I have a really, really good friend who says we always save the best for the last. Um, uh, she eats her dessert last. She eats the crust around her sandwich first so she can have the good part at the end. We save the best for last. And um, that's the way I usually do it. I usually say, these are the other ideas and I don't like those. Here's what I think the Bible is telling us. The second thing I want to do tonight is talk about the biblical concept of faith. It's a weighty matter, but it's a pretty consistent thing in the scriptures. It's somewhat complicated, but it isn't that complicated. And this won't be a theological exposition of what Thomas Aquinas said about it or anyone else. It'll be an examination of really how the New Testament and Old Testament interface on the concept of faith. Amon, Amuna, faith, and pistis pistuo to believe. Then we're going to discuss the Christian life as a walk, the places in the Bible that discuss the Christian way of life in the believer's walk, and uh, that will take us many, many visits by my intention, by design. The last thing tonight is that faith requires an object, and that's the big point of all of this, how Christian spirituality relates to faith, is that you have to believe in something. And um, if let me just spoiler alert. Colossians 3.16, I think, identifies the filling of the Spirit as what he does with the Word of Christ in you. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Well, what you do with that is you're believing it. You're believing what God has said, and you're appropriating his statements, his Word, by faith in him and what he said so that you're stabilized, so that you're useful, so that you're growing. What you do with that Word of Christ richly dwelling is you believe it and then do it. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, the context is uh, the, the earthly tent and the heavenly tent, the, uh, the idea of the spiritual, uh, the, the physical death of the believer being um, a temporary affair, and this body really is a tent, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
where we have that famous verse 9. Um, we have it as our ambition, uh, whether absent from the body or present uh, in the body, to be pleasing to Him. Whether absent from the Lord or, or present with the Lord, we want to be pleasing to Him because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. That's how 2 Corinthians 5 ends. But there's this really intriguing little, little stinger suggestion in verse 7. In verse 6, he says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord. <clears throat> I have a friend that says that, well, because you have plural pronouns, we that this can't mean the individual person's experience. Yeah, um, nobody ever read that and thought that unless they were overthinking. It's called over-rotating on pronouns. That's, that's what I call it. Um, what he's saying here is that um, we, all of us, need to trust what God has said and expect to be absent from the body when we die and present with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But this one little little phrase, Second Corinthians five seven, it says, "For," oh, it's, it actually says, "dia pisteos gar peripatumen udia dia edus." I can't really pronounce Greek very well. My Hebrew pronunciation is way better than my Greek because people still speak Hebrew and they've changed the pronunciation a little bit, but. Um, modern Greek doesn't sound anything like, I think, Koine Greek. Anyway, I don't pronounce Greek properly. What I try to do is look at where the accent is and then put that in the accent on the word. So this one's easy, gar. There's only one syllable. This one is dia because the accent is on the second syllable. See that, dia? Anyway, a um, little fun pronunciation stuff. I want to look at the Greek construction here in a little bit of detail because there are so many verses in the New Testament, um, probably something like 60, that talk about the Christian walk. Talk about the Christian walk. And so here, uh, this is prepositional phrase, dia plus the um, genitive and then, and then the accusative and they're interchangeable. So um, my translation of the New, American, the New American Standard says we walk by faith, not by sight. And so I'm going to mess that up and show you what I think the prepositional phrase dia is doing. Um, you have the conjunction, explanatory conjunction that comes after the phrase. And then you have this two things that happen. This dia plus the genitive of pistis, faith, and dia plus the accusative of, um, of, uh, uh, of the word for sight. And... Um, and so you have these two prepositional phrases that kind of frame the statement. And the main thing is the verb, we are walking, present active indicative from peripateo, stock word in the New Testament for the walk as a metaphor for the way of life. Um, now in the Gospels, there's a couple of places where, and in Acts, where walk according to the traditions of the elders, walking according to the traditions, and that's kata plus the accusative. Well, this is dia plus the genitive, and that matters in Greek grammar. Well, so I'm translating it consistently. For through the instrumentality of faith, we are walking. What we're saying is that the main verb walking, we are walking, is being modified by this phrase dia plus pistis. 
to express the instrumentality, the, the means by which in terms of the instrument that you do. Almost like if you're going to walk, the, the, the equipment you're going to use to walk, the walking stick, the shoes, the sneakers, the, the mechanical capability in your legs. That's the idea. It's instrumentality. And so the walk is not always described in terms of instrumentality. Sometimes it's according to standard. But here it's by the instrument, by the means by which the, the instrumental means of the walk is faith, not sight. Now, why do I want to zoom in on this and really dial down and say a bunch of words? You probably, some of you don't have any idea. Most of you have no idea. Dia, it's just a preposition. Preposition, that's a grammatical feature in all languages that I know of that you express spatial relationships. Where's my hand? On preposition on the pulpit now where's my hand in the pulpit look you speak in greek en i translate i, I pronounce that n n i know in um if i'm going towards it and i and i ha- kind of have a motion that seems to be like this then we would say that was more like n2 right? Because it's, it lives this idea of motion into, that's ace. Ace plus the, um, I think the genitive. Should know that, ace plus the dative. Anyway, ace, actually ace takes, takes two, two dative and accusative. The case of the noun that you use as the prepositional phrase's object, the object of the preposition, changes the meaning of that construction depending on how it's used. And this is dia takes all three, um, accusative nominative genitive and here we have a genitive and an accusative and they're both being used for instrumentality all that is to say that this is a specific way in greek to talk about this concept of the thing you use to do the thing (laughs) the instrument that you use it echoes proverbs 3 5 and 6 you know trust in the lord with all your heart Did you catch the instrumentality? That which I use to trust in the Lord with is my heart. And on your own understanding, don't rely. See, I'm not to use the contents of my heart, my understanding, as my thing I lean on. I'm supposed to lean on the Lord. So my heart is the instrument I use to trust in God. And the contents of my heart, my understanding, is not the object of my faith. Is not the thing I lean on. The Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that's, there's some really interesting poetic parallelism going on in Solomon's Proverbs there. Well, here, um, your Christian walk is going to be accomplished in and only in faith, only by trusting in God. And the, remember, the conclusion I'm going to draw tonight is that there's got to be an object for my faith for me to be walking there has to be this consistent object of my faith. Now, people have recognized that through church history, and there have been many ways we've, we've seen proposed to, to, to solve that problem. If I have to have an object, then maybe if I make a carved image of Mary or Jesus or something else, maybe that'll be something I could focus on. Then I'll always have something to look at. Uh-oh. We walk by faith, not by sight. <laughs> right? So, so there's this, there, maybe, maybe that would be a good way if God didn't give us his way to do it for us to keep our focus so that our faith 
constantly has the right object. But I think what we have is the word of God. And as we trust him by trusting what he's told us, we have our necessary object, God, through what he said. And that's why I think, that's why the filling of the Spirit is the saturation of the believer in this age, the church age believer, set apart to God through the baptism of the Holy Spirit in which you're united to Christ, which was never done before the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, which is the defining feature of this age, which everyone who's in Christ has the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. This wonderful thing that God is doing, this new work, which defines us as the body of Christ, this is for the filling of the Spirit. That's the ultimate expression of God in you. And it's the word of Christ richly dwelling within you. And what you do with that word of Christ is you trust it. As we read in James, you obey it. You do what he says because you trust him. Now, I told you we would talk about in terms of the outline of things tonight, we talk about how uh, this gets done incorrectly, not the way. I think there's a wrong tendency that you see from time to time. Maybe we don't express it, but maybe it's in there and you're thinking, and I want to really knock it out. I want to just completely remove this. So here's my, here's my shot at this, that we become Christians and enter into life by grace through faith alone. But we walk in works and that's it Ta-da! and um, I think that's missing the whole deal of the life that begins by faith and is lived we walk by faith we walk by faith now careful because that first wrong statement has been countered by another wrong statement that well it wasn't really just faith when you first believed in Christ it was faith and works together. It was a coalescence. You were helping God out a little bit, right? So you enter, you're born into life by your works somehow anyway. There are people that are of a reform persuasion that should know better. I mean, I know of a scholar in Baker Exegetical New Testament Commentary Series who will say, yeah, basically justification, initial faith and justification is by faith and works because they've conflated James 2 with Romans and... Um, probably drunk too deeply from the well of the new perspective of Paul. And, um, and after all, you know, I mean, if, if faith without works is dead, then, you know, does it really save you if that's even what James 2 is talking about? I don't think it's what he's even talking about. But um, I think that's wrong to say that um, you can equate faith with works, that a faith, faith is a work. That's the problem. Faith is the thing you can do that's not a work because of the nature, the essential nature of what faith is. It can't be a work. James 2 proves that. Remember, James says, if, if you say you have faith, but not works, I'll show you my faith through my works. If your works demonstrate your faith, then your works can't be faith, and faith can't be a work. One, you can't prove one by the other if they're the same thing. Because reasons it's just logic it doesn't work that's not that's not what james is doing by by saying you have to um an abiding faith needs to be demonstrated in carrying out what you believe i think both both reformed and arminian theologians do this i think they equate faith and works and that's a big mistake what i'm proposing is that we see a life uh that you enter into by faith alone that then we walk by faith and that 
equips us for the works God, the grace works God prepared for us. And my go-to passage for both those concepts of before I became a Christian and now that I am a Christian is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created by that faith that we initially had, created new. We're, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, in Christ, remember, position in Christ, unto good works that he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. That's one of our walking Christian life passages. So you do enter into life by faith alone. You continue in this life walking by faith and that will be in God and his word and in believing who he is and what he says and what he expects. I then carry out that because I believe it and I carry out his expectations, but only in his power. So it's grace works. It's the obedience of faith by the grace of God. And that might sound complicated, but let's make it not complicated. You cannot save yourself by any work that you do. But you have been saved by God's grace to, in faith, carry out a life of works that God equips you to do. We are, as we're teaching at Camp Arete this year, we are redeemed to serve. We're saved by God's grace to serve by faith in his grace. And that's the Christian life. And if you're not in there, if that's not describing your life, then you're really missing out. Let me say it another way. When you're not living that. When we are not walking that way, we're really missing out. What is the work that God has prepared for you to walk in? I'll give you a hint. The Bible's pretty specific about the type of work it is. Now, I often talk about doing your job as unto the Lord. I can show you in the scriptures where it says to do that, especially for slaves, as we've talked about in the household code in Colossians and Ephesians. But I believe that... Um, the specifics of the mission that God has us working in, which will re result in persecution and suffering for his sake, if you watch the epistles closely, is the making of disciples by evangelism and teaching. That's, that's the job. Now figure out how your, your job, whatever it is, all of you, what does your work equip you to do for that? It may be bread on the table for the family and to, to share with others in need and so forth. That's what our work is now. It's mission work. It may be that there's somebody you can talk to at work, but don't, that's not the primary thing. The point is, let's look at our lives as on mission because there's a specific thing the Lord Jesus wants us to be about. Now, I hope I've covered what isn't the way and I've kind of shared with you what I think is the right way to think about the Christian life that walks by faith in this phase of your experience as a believer but I want to talk about the concept of faith in the Bible, what the Bible actually means when it says faith. And I believe it's consistent from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I'm not going to show you the word studies because I've done that before and I can do that again, but I'm not, it's not the bulk of my message tonight. But let me summarize. When Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to you, he is speaking a transliteration that they've brought into Greek from the uh, Aramaic, from the Hebrew, and it's the word aman, A-M-A-N, if you're taking notes. If you're t writing it in Hebrew, it'd be aleph, mem, nun. But I see no one's writing anyway. So, a oh, sorry. Yeah, you are. Well, and, and you, I know you're right there. You out there, touch the screen. Anyway, um, <laughs> Aman uh, is how you throw the vowels in there, and that'd be the cow perfect form, the third singular, Aman. And, um, but you don't, don't do that because it doesn't occur in the, in the cow. It's a nifal or a hifil. 
And you say, what is all that? Well, different verbal stems. There are different ways to write the verbs or pronounce them that give you a little bit different nuance to what you want to use that verb to do. In Hebrew, the base stem, the basic form is cal, and the passive form of the base stem is the nifal. Isn't that easy? Cal and nifal, active, passive, basic meaning, whatever the word basically means. And here's what aman basically means in Hebrew. It means to be faithful or sturdy. It means to be a rock. It means to be dependable unwavering what you and I would call somebody that's being faithful I don't mean somebody that's being believing and trusting in someone else I mean someone that's being sturdy that you can trust in them think about rock climbers okay they have to screw equipment into the rock and expect the equipment to hold and the rock to hold and that's a whole lot of faithfulness in the equipment in the rock and they when they climb it they're trusting it but they're not being trustworthy the rock is trustworthy. You see what I mean? That's the base meaning. And it is always a reference in the Hebrew to God. He is this. But we do this. This verb applies to us in the hifil stem. Isn't that fun? What's the hifil stem? Well, that's when you throw an H in front of the letter, a hey in front of the word, and you change its sense in some sort of intensification or especially, watch it, causation the hifil stem is the causative stem very often sometimes depending on the type of word it'd be called the factative stem it makes it a fact i call that causation but anyway i'm not a grammarian now in the hifil stem of amon guess what happens you do it to god and so to be sturdy now it's to cause to be sturdy and you are doing that to god we are causing god to be faithful or sturdy now, I want to ask a question. How do you move Mount Everest? Well, by faith, just like Jesus. I mean, how are you changing God? You're not. So how are you causing God? It's a grammatical question. We don't cause God. We are changing something we think about him. What this comes to mean from the base stem of the meaning of sturdy or faithful to what we do when we cause God to be faithful in our own thinking is we're recognizing the faithfulness of the other. It's the recognition of God's faithfulness. That's the base meaning of what you do toward God in faith in Hebrew. Hephil stem of Ammon. Look it up. So what are we saying? It is recognition of that which is true, whether we recognize it or not. God is faithful. What we're saying is he's faithful. We're saying he is trustworthy. He is the one in whom we repose, therefore our trust. See how we think of it backwards? We think of the base thing as us relying on someone else, but actually that's a consequence of the other person being reliable. You trust God. God doesn't fill you. He doesn't make you by his thinking that he's not trusting in you. We trust him. Now this, you don't have different stems in Greek. Greek is specific, but it does its, its grammatical communication for syntax of different things in, in different ways. And it's more ambiguous, actually, on this concept. The noun is pistis, or pistis, and the verb is pistuo, pistuo. And um, that can mean either one. That can mean somebody is sturdy or faithful, which, remember, in Hebrew, that's God. That's the, that's the, the, the base meaning. 
Or it can mean someone is trusting someone else who is faithful. Someone is recognizing the faithfulness and stability of another, or as we would say, believing them or trusting them. And that's challenging because sometimes you wonder, is it talking about faithfulness or faith? And it could be that the author is intending to totally flummox us by saying, yes, both. But I think generally you can pick one. He's either talking about believing in God or being faithful because God has stabilized you. Sometimes faith is that which is believed and sometimes faith is the belief in that which is believable. That's the biblical concept of faith. Now, I know there's three things that the, the Latin guy said that you've got to have for there to be faith. There's got to be a knowledge and I think that's scientia. And um, I don't like that explanation near as much as the biblical one. Scientia and volition or will and... Um, um, I forget the, the, the other one, but I don't want to divide it up into the way theologians have said it. I want to say what you're doing when you're trusting in God is you're recognizing who he is. You're telling the truth, right? But it's a choice. There is a volitional component to that. Have you ever had to say, God, I trust you even though I'm struggling here? Have you ever had to make the choice to trust him where you're conscious of this? I recently had a really good question is faith really a choice, really putting in front of somebody, you can have eternal life and bliss with God or you can suffer an eternal damnation in the flames of the lake of fire? I mean, it doesn't really seem like much of a choice. And I said, well, interestingly on that, um, for someone to believe that there is reprobation for sin, that's already faith. We're already expressing faith in that, that you even believe, even this conversation, that it's God's way or or no total separation from God in the lake of fire. Uh, You're already believing that much to say that hell is a motivation to believe in God. And I'd say that that's that's asking questions that when we come like a little child to the gospel of Jesus Christ, convicted by the Holy Spirit of our need for salvation, I don't think we're conscious of any of these things. I think we believe. Isn't that your experience? That was my experience. It, it seemed true to me as I understood, as I was being opened to this, and I believed. And I have to admit, though, the first time I believed, I don't remember thinking, I choose to believe. But many times thereafter, I've had to make a conscious choice to believe. I'm told by some uh, apologists and uh, theologians and philosophers that, well, you really can't choose to believe something. You don't have a choice about it. It either seems true and you believe it or not. And I differ with that greatly. I think, um, I think there's, a, there's a, a conscious choice that at times I'm conscious of. Other times I'm really not conscious of the choice. Now we're talking about consciousness. Can I talk about that for just a minute? Some of you are like, not if you want me to be conscious. <laughs> I am subconsciously trying to get you to think about consciousness. You know, this is a topic that um, people don't really know much about. The Bible doesn't address it very much. When you read people that focus on consciousness, it's a really bizarre topic to, to, to think through. Consciousness, this is the awareness that you have of what's going on in the inner workings of your mind. I think we have consciousness without being conscious of consciousness. You with me? Navel gazing complete. We don't really, that we don't, Think about that. You're not watching the internal workings of the car motor while you drive it. You're just driving. You're getting where you're going. And that's kind of what I think consciousness theory and study does for you is it basically puts you into a frame of mind about things that you don't generally think about. 
That's okay. It's good to know that there's a thing called consciousness, and I know, uh, generally, I know when I have it. (laughs) And sometimes I have to confess to you, I'm aware that my faith, that my, I'm struggling with doubt about one thing or another, about, about a strong conviction I might have. And I, and I go to God when I have those moments where I'm conscious of a doubt about the things of God, I go to him in prayer. It's second nature, isn't it? To tell him I'm struggling here, strengthen me. And I choose very often to love the God who loves me. I choose to love the people he's told me to love. I choose to trust him. I think a lot of, um, a lot of the Christian life involves our choices. But I don't think it always has to be this aware choice. I think sometimes you just find a conviction that that's, that, that rings true. And I would challenge you not to spend a whole lot of time reading about consciousness unless you want to be unconscious to, to borrow that joke again. All right. The essence of faith, I think, in the Bible is the recognition that God is faithful, that he's the object of our trust. We're trusting in him. We're recognizing. And I, I wouldn't probably go much further. Oh, no, no, it's got to be this deep conviction that, that you do something. Well, now we're, we're headed towards works. And I think the whole deal is that faith is the trust of the work of the other. And so I do really hang on to that concept of trust. And... Um, I'm apparently in good company because so does the Apostle Paul and John and Jesus. And, um, but this, is, this seems to be the biblical concept of faith. In other words, get ready for it. It's not about us. It really is the focus on God and seeing him as he is, trusting in who, he, who and what God is. And so this is a really important thing to strengthen, to work on, to live in because it's the instrumentation for the Christian way of life. We walk by faith, not by sight. Now, you're in a time, I talk about this all the time, but you're in a culture that really, this preaches very well. We are geared to walk by sight more now than we've ever been in our lives. And it's very interesting that the things that we're looking at on the Cheerios box today, Ellen DeGeneres, right there. Thank you, Cheerios. Who is that lady? Well, so I'm going to teach you a word. It's degenerate. Um. I didn't do that. I just said, that's, that's a person. Eat your Cheerios. It's gluten-free. Enjoy. Anyway, um, as, we're, as we're thinking about this life we live in, we're just primed to see and think we know because we see. And I can prove to you from your culture that seeing isn't knowing. It isn't really knowing. You know what someone may be saying to you, but you don't know if it's really true. But prove it television internet before there was ever any electronic media people are already saying don't believe everything you read and now we have to tell the kids just because you see it doesn't make it so because people are artists they're now visually telling you things that aren't true we could talk about all kinds of deceptive things that humans have have done artifices of human beings not to mention the demonic deceptions of the of the doctrines of demons that proliferate through all civilizations we walk by faith not by sight and that is the exercise of the attention to God and who he is and trusting him and trusting what he said and that requires an object and that's 
the whole deal with Christian spirituality, recognizing the object. A couple of places in the scriptures that des- describe the Christian life as a walk. We've already talked about 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Very, uh, several times in the book of John, Jesus describes himself as the light and what you do with the light. And, f- and the gospel of John does it in 8, uh, 12. Jesus is the light of the world so that we do not walk in darkness. Okay, we also have it in 1 John. Same writer has this theme of walking in the light, walking in darkness. And this is in, this is the prepositional phrase in, and the communication that John is making there is that based on the revelation of God and fellowship with him, we can walk in God's character, walk according to his righteousness. And I think this is what John generally means by the walk in the light, especially in 1 John 1. We've had Romans 6 recently, but did you notice that in Romans 6, 4, because of the resurrection of Christ and your union with him, you walk in newness of life? You walk in newness of life? In Romans 8, 4, where we're in on Sundays now, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And there's that kata prepositional phrase where it's the standard and we'll find in that context the mindset. The con- the, 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 and that's a, just a little bit different facet, but the mindset of the Spirit of God, the things of the Spirit, that would be the Word of God in which we're trusting, and it all fits together. And the big, the, the, the so what, I, I am not so much on so what, because they sound simple until you find out how you got them, and you're sort of beautiful and complex. I really like the how we get there. But the so what of this is that we have to be in the Word constantly. You have to be in the Word constantly because you need a constant object for your faith, and this is how God has communicated himself to us. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the day. Romans 14, 15, walking according to love. And it's the same construction as Romans 8, 4. Walk according to this standard the Spirit has given us of love. You see, the Christian life is always described as a walk and walking by instrumentality of faith, walking by faith is going to be trusting in God through what he's told us of himself, his word and his works. And then it's going to be carrying that out, which will be the command to love. Do you believe that God commands you to love? That's faith. I do believe that. Do you believe in the God who says it? Yes, I believe in him. Do you believe you're therefore responsible for it? Yes, I believe I'm responsible. Do you believe he gives you the power to love? Yes, I believe that he tells me throughout the scriptures in the New Testament, I am empowered by the spirit to love. And so I'm primed in every different way to to do it. Now doing it isn't the same as believing, but believing has equipped me to do it. Do you believe that if I don't love, that I miss out on something that God desperately wants me to have? Yes. Do I believe I'm going to regret that? Yes, I do believe that. Why? Because the Bible says so. So see how faith hits me in all these different directions to prime me to obey. Now, what happens if I don't have the faith part and I just have the obedience? Legalism. You know, I'm just going to go by the rules, just do what? Do the things. Well, that's not what we're talking about. All right? Faith leads me to obedience by the grace of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the Christian walk. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, they're walking as mere men, remember? Because they're Christians, but they're walking in carnality. So they're indistinguishable in their mindset and their practice from unbelievers. Can the Christian really be like that? Yeah, that's why 1 Corinthians was written. That's why Galatians was written. These are punitive letters to Christians that are trapped in carnality. And in Galatians, it's because of false doctrine. They've lost the track of the word of God that Paul had taught them. 
in um, 2 Corinthians 10, very interesting, Paul is defending his ministry and he says in verses two and three that you think I walk according to the flesh. Now I do walk in the flesh, but not according to the flesh. And in that context, what he's saying is, yeah, I'm a human, but I am not warring. I'm not living my life. I'm not walking the Christian life according to the flesh and the power of the flesh. This is the power of God. And that's the passage where he's tearing down all kinds of fortresses of speculation against God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ there in 2 Corinthians 10.5. One of our favorite verses for life verses for just how to think about things, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Try to do that without faith. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, the unbeliever walks according to the, it says the, the course of this world, it's the age of this world, the dominion, the age or dominion of the cosmos. And that's a, that's a spiritual warfare passage, Ephesians chapter 2. We're, we're commanded by Paul in Ephesians 5.8 to walk as children of light. I think echoing what John does with light because they're both disciples of Jesus who taught on light. Ephesians 5.15, we do not walk as unwise, but as wise, making most of the time for the days are evil and not being carried along by every wind of doctrine. But um, anyway, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 is a command not to be foolish in your walk, but wise, knowing the will of God. Paul tells the, the Philippians in 3.17 to um, observe those who walk according to our pattern. Christian life is learned in part from living it together. When someone says, I can't do that, and they're a farther along Christian than you are, you say, well, huh, what's going on with that? I recently became aware of a, a brother and sister in Christ that struggle with gossip from others that are participating, trafficking in gossip. And they say, hey, we shouldn't be doing that. I can't do that. That's, that's walking according to Paul's pattern. When you say no, guess what the other person says? They're not going to observe the pattern they saw in Paul, but they're going to continue with the lust of the flesh and gossip. Well, they're going to find themselves at odds with those walking according to Paul's pattern. And that'd be someone that's out of line. And uh, that's Philippians 3.18. Many walk, and I tell you through tears, as enemies of the cross. Just real quick, do y'all remember from Philippians 3 how you become an enemy of the cross? I think technically Paul's talking about unbelievers there, but... But what is an enemy of the cross? Christian idolatry in the church age, remember? Their God is their stomach, meaning their appetite, whatever they feel like. It's their, the, the, the emotions, their feelings, hooked up to the sin nature. All right? So their God is their stomach, and then the outcome is they set their minds on earthly things. Remember that? Oh, I think Christians can be enemies of the cross. I think that's, the, that's why Paul says they're carnal in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. They're carnal. They're, they're, they're walking as mere men. And so these men that Paul refers to, um, boy, that, that sounds a lot like a lot of Christian experience to walk where you set your mind on earthly things. I think we're in an earthly things kind of church churchianity frame in, in popular Christendom today. I think that's pretty much what's going on as we're setting our mind on earthly things and then preaching it. Oh, that sounds good to me. Mm-hmm, let me hear some more of that. 
Colossians 1.10, one of the great summaries is that Paul uh, implores them to walk worthy of the Lord. 2.6, Colossians 2.6 says, you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Yeah, I looked up all the places that use the word peripateo in the New Testament and then I saw where they're talking about the Christian life. These are all different aspects, all different facets. I'm trying to sort of 3D print you a picture of the Christian life from all these different ways it's described. One of our favorites is uh, 3 John 4. No greater joy, right? 3 John 4, what? There's only one chapter, so we don't say 1 4. We say 3 John verse 4. And John's like, hey, I wrote a lot of stuff. Just, this is a short little personal letter. Have no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. Walk in the truth. So that's, in John's thinking, that's the word of God. Your word is truth. So the Christian life is always portrayed as a walk and all these different aspects would be something that would be really fun to tease out. But tonight I wanna talk about walking by faith, not by sight. That's really what we're, what we're looking at, the Christian walk by faith. And I don't think there's a moment in your Christian life when you're walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit that you're not trusting in God and who he is and what he said. Who he is and what he said. How do I know who he is? Because of what he said. We can tell from general revelation, according to Romans chapter one, that God is powerful, that he's divine, that he has these, these, this divine power. But to know him as he wants to be known by us, we have to go to special revelation, and that is the word of God. That's the 66 books of the Bible in our day. And I believe it is prophetic from beginning to end and therefore directly from God through human agency inspired by the Holy Spirit. God breathed in 2 Timothy 3.16. And so walking in faith requires an object. That's the big thing about the Christian spiritual life. When you're feeling, I'm spiritually lagging or I'm just not, not there, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not telling you that another five hours of Bible reading is gonna get you where you wanna be in terms of how you feel. What I wanna say is that we need to constantly, ex- constantly be exercising our trust, and that needs a pretty constant object. Now, I can, I can tell you from my experience, I know the difference between that sense of stability because I've been taken in the Word, and I've been talking to God, and, 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 and I'm aware and conscious of Him, back to that consciousness, conscious of who he is and what he's done and I'm trusting him and I know and I know life when I'm not there and I need to get back and I and I also know that I can't just bull my way back in and say we're we're going to do this I always have to ask I always have to come to him and talk to him and ask him for his help and um I think as an act of recognition of who and what God is, that trust in God's faithfulness and sufficiency, that he becomes that object that always has to be before me. This is saturation with the word. This is why the word of God. I don't think that God gave us the word so we'd know a bunch of stuff. Well, you know, the Bible's not a textbook. It's not a science book. People say that because they don't want to believe the details of Genesis, chapters one through 11. Um, but I think that's a good statement, actually, 
to understand. It's not so you'll just know about creation and then, then have it figured out. It's so that after reading Genesis, when you go out and you see a rock and you pick it up and say, my dad made this. Not very long ago. <laughs> but it becomes an act of worship to, to, to appreciate and see his works. And now I have a whole new appreciation. Now I'm a little amateur geologist. I like rocks now. I used to hate rocks. I used to hate I, that whole eighth grade year of like earth science, just shoot me. I wish I could get it back now because we were learning all this stuff that isn't really so and I knew there was something wrong with it. So I was like, I like to look at the pictures of the dinosaurs. But I didn't really want to learn it. It was one of the fir- first and only things I ever went through that I didn't really want to learn. And, um, and then I learned about creation science and I said, wait a second, that rock is made by my dad. It's a whole different way of looking at life and everything around us. But see, the object has to be in place. The, the whole point is that you're talking about dad. You're talking about your, your heavenly father. I think one of the greatest struggles in your life will be maintaining a sufficient focus on the object of your faith so that you derive the necessary stability for making successful decisions in life. I almost want to write that up on the board. But I don't trust my handwriting right now, so I'm going to say it again. If faith requires an object, the object being God, and we access him through what he said, and that's why we go to the word so we know him, then maintaining a sufficient focus on God as the object of our faith to derive the necessary stability for making successful decisions in life, that's going to be one of the big challenges. What are some obstacles to that challenge? Sin, obviously. I don't want to trust you because I want to do the thing that I feel like doing because my, my, my appetites are hooked up to my sin nature and I'm not going to turn to you and say, God, help me. I'm not going to turn to your word and say, the word clearly says it's not worth it. I'm going to pull an Esau and trade inheritance for lentil stew. I'm going to say not walk by the spirit, walk according to the flesh, right? I'm going to set my mind on the flesh, which is death, as we saw in Romans 8. See, it's, it's all about a choice there of maintaining that focus. It's an attentiveness. And I think that is why you're saturated with the word. I believe that to maintain a sufficient focus on the object of your faith so that you are uh, stabilized to make good decisions that please God, I think to do that requires a daily focus on God's word. And here's how this works. Like right now, we're talking all about God, what he's doing, what he wants, what his word says, what his word does, and why we pay attention to it. We're talking about the whole thing about spirituality. And my prayer for you, and it has been all day, is that it's real to you right now. If these things are real to you, that, that you are stabilized in this moment because we're talking about the reality and validity of God's word for what he sent it to do, which is to sanctify us. And that's because we're focused. We're attentive now. But you're about to talk to somebody else later. You're gonna go do something else later. You have other things that God has called you to do. And so it won't be time to focus. You won't be like reading your notes on your, on your device. Sorry. My glasses on. You won't be uh, reading your notes on your device while you're supposed to be talking to the other person. Hey, yeah, so... Uh, um, keep, keep, keep talking, I'm listening. 
as you're scrolling through your notes. That's not, that's not the time for that. The time for the concentration and focus is when you've set it aside and you turn all the, the distractions off like we do. You know, we, we used to have a phone up here. It was, it was hung on the, the pillar right here. It was one of those old-timey phones. We, we took it out. It would ring in the middle of service. And I'm just kidding. We never put a phone there. What a great idea. Maybe we should put a telephone up on the wall. <laughs> now with your cell phone, you could call it and interrupt the meeting, right? We don't do that. We have one in the building, but, um, but it's not going to interfere with what we're doing now. Just for one example, we, we have the time set aside because we need to focus and we need that feeding on the word to stabilize, to focus on God. But then there's coming the time when I won't be doing that, but it needs to kind of be there. It needs to be my perspective. I need to see the people I'm talking to. I need to see the interactions I'm going to have through that lens of the truth that I have feasted on today. And I think you have to sleep every day. By the way, God made you. You're made to sleep every day. Partly because these are the little bites, the little steps that we take to meet our Savior face to face every little day. And in that day, you need to eat. So it's a daily commitment. It's a daily focus so that we're stabilized. Now, for later, we have that perspective. We have that divine viewpoint. Here's what happens to that when I'm regular and consistent in my concentration, meditation on the things of God. When I'm consistent, I have a perspective of who he is and I'm walking by faith because I'm thinking of him. But when I let things distract me, I did set aside some time to be in the word, but the phone rang and I did answer it. And you know, it was important. It was really, really, really important. Now, it wasn't a communion with the God of the universe, but it, it was an important person that called, and, and they're not quite as important as God, but, but they were pretty important. See what happened? I set aside the time, but I didn't do what I needed to do. And guess what happens now? I'm going to be weakened when it's time to not be focused on the Word, but to be dealing with people from the perspective of the Word. Now I go forward the next day, and I'm like, well, I really don't feel like it. Uh, you know, every once in a while I have an off day, don't get in the Word. And then, and then all of a sudden, um, you, uh, it's Sunday morning and you want to go worship at the Church of the Rusty Spring with, a, with Reverend Jedediah Sheets. Do you know what that is? It's when you sleep in <laughs> on Sunday morning. <laughs> the Church of the Rusty Spring, come on, that's pretty good. John Hanna told that joke and we all laughed, but it's probably because it was Dr. Hanna. Anyway, um, the point I'm making is that um, if we're not actually regular, this is something that takes constant maintenance. Constant maintenance. It's like fuel. It's not oil changes. It's constant, okay, to, to live this life. And that's what saturation looks like. The result of daily concentration will be consistent viewpoint or perspective. Does that make sense? Daily concentration gives me consistent viewpoint. Not perfectly consistent. And guess what? I could walk out of this room and have, you know, the fading glory Moses had. Like we were in the word and then, you know, it kind of, that, that, that sense of the word kind of attenuates over time, right? I could walk right out of here and be, be, up, be really high in my emotional sense of, of what I just enjoyed. But somebody cuts me off in traffic. I make a wrong choice. I choose to get angry. 
my perspective is blown. I don't mean that that doesn't, that, well, now we gotta go back to church and hear the word again, or I gotta get back in the Bible and read for another hour. I'm saying that um, you need to keep short accounts, and um, I think that sin will be a real distraction to that saturation since it does grieve and quench the spirit. When I'm not enjoying an intense uh, time of meditation on the word, I still need to look at life through the lens of scripture and that's what saturation does for you. Gives you that perspective. Now, if you don't feel that, sense that, if you don't have that in your life, then you need to make, you need to adjust the dosage. Or maybe uh, too many different voices. Too many different voices can confuse you. You know, at some point, there are too many voices in the choir and we're not singing in harmony anymore. You know, it doesn't take too many clunkers to mess up the, the, the symphony. And some of, you, some of you have talked to me about that here and there. I think one of the great distractions for the necessary focus we have on the word is an undue attention to our feelings. Here we go. Now let's do it. But feelings are so good. And if I get your feelings going, then you want to come back and you'll bring your friends and then we can have a big church. Won't that be nice? I just like how I feel when I hear him preach. It's not my goal to make you feel bad when you hear me preach, but I just, it's not my goal at all. Because I, fe- I believe that your feelings by God's design are supposed to follow what you know of him. And I'm not looking for you to have emotional highs. I'm looking for you to have deep sunk roots with stability in your walk before God and his grace and his power. I think an unnecessary focus on, un, on, um, on feelings does a strange thing to us. We have this collection of feelings, physical and spiritual, the way we're made and that mysterious sort of nexus between our mortal bodies, our immortal souls. And that makes, you ready for it? The context for your consciousness. I'm gonna go there. Let me get down on the floor again. Your feelings are the context for your consciousness. Anybody feeling sick tonight? Some of you are. Some of you are feeling the mold counter. Whatever has happened to us, the sun came out and then we all got sick. It's fun how we live here. I can't wait till the millennium, but I guess I have to wait. Okay. If the rapture happens tonight, I'm pretty sure it's about seven years later, give or take. Now, (laughs) we don't know when the peace treaty starts. But anyway, my point is that... um, when, uh, when you feel bad, you may not be having a bad spiritual time. You may not be lacking in your faith in God. You just feel bad. Try to have that rosy glow while you have a headache. Well, your feelings are headachey, and you feel sad and bad about that headache because you feel bad. And so it's the context for your consciousness, your feelings. You need to exercise. You need to get good sleep, eat healthy food, take your supplements, all that stuff because it's necessary context for your constant consciousness and awareness of God, your saturation with the scriptures. It's necessary context. And that's why Paul says exercise helps a little. Changing, doing work for the body helps a little. But what we really need to be is focused on God. See, it's context. Does that word make sense? It's the, it's the, the general environment in which I'm thinking of my Savior. And if I'm always overtired, it's not going to be where it should be. So that's why bodily exercise helps a little. What happens when my feelings become my consciousness, my focus? What happens when my feelings become the thing? Usually their context 
But if my head hurts so bad, if I've got an acute headache, then I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just, I'm having a prayer time. Lord, save me. Help me. This hurts. Lord, you know it hurts. You know all things. You know this hurts. You know that you can take this away. You know what to do. Please fix my headache. And you ever have those prayer times? Or is it just me, right? Acute feeling issues become, and uh, let's talk about the emotional, spiritual side of things. You've been hurt. Someone told you something no one's ever supposed to say to a human being. I don't love you. Well, that was a headache to, to switch to that from headaches to I don't love you. Well, most people in our civilization have experienced this. It's, this, it's a shocking thing for someone to say this. It's not you, it's me. I just don't love you anymore. I don't love you or whatever it is. Parents say it to children. Teenagers say it to each other because, I don't know, stupid teenagers. You get this extreme, intense, emotional, acute pain and now it's not the context for my consciousness, it's everything. I'm overwhelmed. I'm destroyed in my ability to be saturated with the word, to focus on my savior, to rejoice in my salvation and so my feelings have overwhelmed me and now I've got a problem with walking by faith see feelings are powerful but I think their job is generally to be contextual and that's why the the design philosophy of ministry here is let's be in the word and not focus so much on the emotion I had a good illustration I liked for this the thought of this okay so here's the importance of context we're in the word of God right we're enjoying the word. The context is uh, the, the, the meeting house, the, the, the time we've set aside. It's not work time. You know, um, the kids aren't running around up and down the aisles screaming uh, or, or, or silently. We've set some, some conditions for a necessary context to be in the word. Imagine uh, you want to go hear Beethoven's seven, uh, yeah, seventh. Seven, yeah, seventh. Second movement. It's a great symphony. It's awesome. You go hear Beethoven second at the intersection of a busy, busy four-way stop. Downtown Main Street, the orchestra sets up. And uh, you're there on the curb trying to hear the symphony. Well, the context is, is, is kind of off there. The honking of the horns, um, the, the, the police, hear police sirens in the distance, these crazy crowd, uh, what's it, what's the flash mob symphony in the middle of this busy intersection at rush hour. That's not the context for this, and it's awful. The one, you know, one motorcyclist got a little, little frisky and tried to go around, and he clipped the timpani player, and he's, he's, now, he's hurt. You don't have any more timpanis for your symphony. It's a, it's a mess. It's not the right context, and I think that's the power of emotion. When you're in the wrong, say, when you're in the wrong place, when your context is off, this is why your life kind of goes sideways, and I think there's a solution to that, but it's the same, same thing we're talking about. It's a constant obligation to be saturated with the word, to seek the filling of the spirit with the word of God in a fairly condensed way. If we put our feelings constantly in the forefront of our thinking, then we're not going to be conscious and thinking of our Savior. We're not going to be focused on Him. And so there's your joy is gone. There is no joy if all you have is your feelings. Joy is the response to what God has told you. So we put our feelings in their place. They have a value as context, but they're not the focus of our attention in general and certainly not the object of our faith. And this is where we really get screwed up. I'm gonna trust in my feelings. (laughs) Oh, no. 
that's worthless. That's, um, that's not the thermometer. That's not uh, how you know what is true. So what's the object of our faith? God, we trust in him. I can't see him. I'm hurting too bad. I'm too worried. I'm too anxious. I'm too this or that. Well, this is the point where I really want to bring out an application. I want to turn in your Bibles as we close tonight. Please look in Philippians chapter 4 for a a concluding application of this need for the walk by faith. 